Well, we are continuing a series entitled Broken People, Big God. And we've been looking at some well-known characters in the Bible, some less, lesser-known characters in the Bible, and really seeing how both of those groups of people are really ultimately just broken people used by a big God. And so people like David, who you see as this Renaissance man, who's this warrior guy, but he's also playing the harp, and this, this guy after God's own heart, like you just, you see this amazing hero of the faith, or you see a lady named Sarah in the Old Testament. Some of you think, who's Sarah? Yeah, exactly. Whether you see one of these people or somebody else, they're ultimately, at the end of the day, broken people used by a big God. And here's why that's important, is all of us are broken people with the opportunity to be used by a big God. The, the pastor on the stage, Billy Graham, but also just the person that lives in their neighborhood and works in the cube. Like all of us ultimately are broken people used by a big God. That's the story of scripture. That's the story of our lives. And so we wanna learn from the lives of other people and see how God used them and see how God can ultimately use us. And so today we are looking at the life of Nehemiah. And we're gonna get into the story in just a moment. But what I can tell you off the top is there is brokenness surrounding Nehemiah. There, there's literally broken, uh, brokenness in a broken city, broken down walls, burned down gates. There's, there's brokenness around Nehemiah and God calls Nehemiah to step into it with courage and help bring about rebuilding and restoration. And here's why I'm excited for us to go through the life of Nehemiah is because we have brokenness in our world, amen? You don't need me to preach that to you, ultimately. You don't need the Bible to preach that to you. You just can turn on the news, talk to a neighbor, or talk to your spouse, and you know that there is brokenness. Right? We, we see it everywhere we go. We do see it in marriages. Uh, some of you may know this, like it does get really hot in, in Phoenix in the summer, but summer is still wedding season. And I've officiated a lot of weddings and most of them have been during the summer. And maybe some of you here, I uh, see some of you holding hands. Maybe you're thinking about getting married and uh, maybe you're thinking about having me officiate your wedding and slow down a little bit. We do premarital counseling before the wedding. And it's, it's fairly intense, right? And, and so if you want me to do that, we can talk afterwards. But, but we always do premarital counseling and uh, it never fails. Here's the way we do premarital counseling. We go through a book and all those things, but basically we set it up this way. God ordained marriage. Like it's between a man and a woman and it's this beautiful union of two different people coming together to become one. But, but a few weeks in, as we start to talk about what that looks like, like financially to become one, sexually to become one, like with all your past hangups, and hurts, like, like uh, relationally, emotionally, to become one, spiritually to become one. And one of you likes to pray and one of you is not so sure about prayer and, and all those things to become one. And a few weeks in, it never fails. We say marriage is beautiful, but it is also messy. Married people say amen, right? Don't, don't fool these youngins, like let them know the truth, okay? Marriage is beautiful, but it's also messy. And I can, the kind of the, my personality, I can like keep going down that road. I'm just like, marriage is so hard. And just the finances and the in-laws, do you even know how they feel about you? And like, and I can get, but luckily like we do marriage counseling, my wife and I, we do that together. And luckily by God's grace, she's there to step in in those moments and be like, but marriage is kind of good guys. Like, it's not all bad. And like, we like, we love each other. <laughs> you know, we've been married 16 years. But the reality is, I mean, you want to see brokenness in the world? Just, just be married. Just turn on the news. Just don't be married and be single. Some of you are like, yes. 
There's brokenness in our world. And so as we look at the life of Nehemiah, we're gonna see he had the courage to step in and help restore the brokenness. And you and I are called to the same thing. But as I studied that, I just thought, well, what kind of courage is this? And I think it might surprise us, the kind of courage Nehemiah had, the kind of courage God is calling us to have as we step into the brokenness of our world and help rebuild it and bring about restoration. And so I wanna look at courage in the life of Nehemiah and see how it can be used in our life. And so we're gonna head to the book of Nehemiah. It's about a quarter of the way through your Old Testament. Grab a Bible. Uh, get that in front of you. You can grab one under the seat in front of you if you didn't bring one. Uh, please use that. Take that with you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. If you are new with us, we will read a little bit and break it down, then read a little bit more, break it down. First thing we're looking at is courageous grief. Courageous grief. Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 1, it says this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. But why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So just hitting pause right there. Here's what you see so far is a couple times you see Nehemiah is sad. And so we're gonna look at why is he sad and why does that matter? And to do that, we kind of have to pull back a little bit. We're parachuting into this text. So I want you to know what's going on in the text. Uh, the reality is in the Old Testament, it's basically a story of a group of people called the Israelites. And it's a story of their success. It's the story of their, their failures. And oftentimes it's a story of, of God restoring his people. And we're in a part of a story in the Israelites story where that is happening. Uh, God is bringing them back, uh, literally bringing them back to himself, but also to the city of Jerusalem, their hometown. You see, the Israelites at this point have been in exile in Babylon, and, and many of them are starting to return home. You can read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, fun fact, those were actually one book together originally, because it's kind of the same story. They're split up into our Bibles, but it's basically the people of Israel going home to Jerusalem. And as we show up in the book of Nehemiah in chapter two, what, what's happened is uh, Nehemiah has realized that his people, he's an Israelite, his people are going back to a town that's in ruins. Literally, that's what it says in the text, that their walls are broken down, their gates are, are burned down. And in an ancient Near East culture, that was significant. Because if they didn't have security, they had immense poverty because people wouldn't be comfortable to rebuild homes. They wouldn't be comfortable to open up businesses and, and get the economy back to where it was. And so this was significant. And in chapter one, Nehemiah hears about this brokenness that's occurring in his hometown of Jerusalem, but he's not there. He is serving the Persian king Artaxerxes. He's the cupbearer to the king, which basically meant he was the personal assistant to the king. He would test wine and make sure it wasn't poisoned and all those kinds of things for the king, but he would do anything the king wanted him to do. And Nehemiah, this Israelite guy, is serving this Persian king, but he hears about his people and they're hurting. And so he hurts. He's sad. 
And some of you think, well, Tim, why, why is that courageous? Well, you need to know the context that you are not supposed to be sad in front of a king. No, you, you are supposed to be all hell the king all the time. King, you are so glorious that you bring me joy no matter what I'm experiencing. And you are only supposed to show happiness and joy around a king, not sadness or grief. And we get a hint of that as we see Nehemiah. Did you see that? He had never been sad in the presence of the king before. This is not something that you do. And we see in verse two, he's afraid because he is sad. Because the king and kings were known to do this. If you insult them by not honoring their presence, they could take your head off, literally. And so it's incredibly courageous as Nehemiah doesn't hide his grief for his people. He doesn't conceal it. He expresses it. And you need to know he expressed it because it was genuine. As we kind of look at a timeline at the beginning of chapter two, it says in the month of Nisan, did you notice that? That's about four months after Nehemiah learned about the brokenness of his people. In Nehemiah chapter one, it's all a prayer. You should go read it, it's beautiful. But it doesn't stop with one prayer. Nehemiah has spent four months lamenting and praying and grieving. You gotta picture this moment. His people are suffering and in pain. And he wasn't able to pick up the phone and call them and get a proof of life. He wasn't able to hop on social media and be like, oh, I guess it's not that bad. He was constantly worrying, grieving, praying, wrestling. What can I do? And what's fascinating is most scholars think maybe Nehemiah had actually never been to Jerusalem because they had been in exile so long. Maybe he had never been to that place, but he has a heart for the people. And when you have a heart for people who are suffering and in pain, you suffer and are in pain because of them. Right? That's what we see in the New Testament, right? We mourn with those who mourn. And that's what Nehemiah displays here. It's courageous as we go on to read. It's what unlocks and ignites the restoration of Jerusalem. It's grief, Courageous grief. And I think we have to kind of reframe uh, courage in our, in our time here. Because I, I, if I had to guess, many of you, when you thought we were gonna talk about courage, you didn't think about grief, right? You thought about like blue face Mel Gibson or whatever favorite vengeance movie you like, right? Like that's courage. Somebody who goes out and fights, somebody who takes vengeance. Maybe you think about courage today in our world. Somebody, whoever's the loudest, whoever gives the longest rant, like that's courage, right? And maybe somebody who doesn't do that, they don't have courage, right? Social media, anybody with me? That's, that's how we typically think about courage in our day. And yet we see this courage of Nehemiah. There's brokenness. What helps that brokenness be restored? It's grief. It's grief. And I was thinking about our day. I was thinking about, okay, what, what are examples like this in our day? So I decided to choose the most controversial one, which is abortion and Roe v. Wade. And I just, I, I, honestly, I just, as your pastor, I couldn't help, as I studied this, I couldn't help but think about that. And, and to think like, are people Christians who care about life in the womb? We do. Psalm 139, they're knitted together. We believe there's life in the womb. Like you look at New Testament examples like Elizabeth and Mary, you see God cares about life in the womb. And we do as a church. They're created in the image of God with inherent dignity, life, and worth. And we support Hope Women's Center and advocate for life in the womb. But I wondered, 
how many people in our world feel that care and concern right now? As churches wave the flag, as they do laps, victory laps, and get big cheers and loud rants, like, we won! I wonder how many of the women who've had an abortion feel the love of Christians right now. Because here's, no matter what you believe about Roe v. Wade, I know we're in central Phoenix, the fifth largest city in the country. I imagine in this room, some of you have different views about it. No matter what side of the aisle you are on, you have to admit this, that with the topic of abortion, there is immense pain and hurt associated with it. And this season where it's in the news and everybody's talking about it and some churches are waving the flag and asking for applause, that that's stirring up pain. I, I, I don't know if you do, I know women who've had an abortion and it's a painful season, shameful season. We, we did our Roe v. Wade video and we just, we shared, we shared our conviction. We shared Psalm 139, Imago Day, life in the womb, but we also shared compassion. And specifically, I just told the women, I addressed women and said, we love you. And I got emails and messages from women just saying, hey, I've never heard that before. Thank you. Church, can we see the courage of grief? Can we? Can I get an amen? Can, can we step in when we see brokenness of any kind and not just make a point, but see the person and grieve with them as they are grieving? Have a conviction, but still have a compassion? That's what I see when I look at the life of Jesus. We say it this way, we engage culture, uphold truth, and we love people well. The reason we say that as a church is because we see Jesus do that in his life. And we didn't come up with that, Jesus did. And may that mark the church of Jesus Christ, amen? Okay, I'm gonna move on before I get in trouble. Courageous grief, courageous grief. Do you respond when you see brokenness? Do you respond, hey, I'm gonna mourn with those who mourn? Do you respond that way? Do you ignore or downplay their grief? Do you add to it? Or do you grieve it with them? That's, that's powerful. That's courageous. That's the role of the church of Jesus Christ with whatever issue it happens to be. Second point is courageous asks an action. Look at Nehemiah chapter two again with me. We're gonna continue the story in verse four. It says this, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that's Jerusalem, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors uh, of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of God was upon me skip down to verse 11 We see Nehemiah, he goes, so I went to Jerusalem. 
and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. That is what you think it is. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Maybe some of you are thinking, Tim, that seems like a lot of monotonous details, but, it, but it's really not. Here's what you just read. You read these significant questions that Nehemiah asked King Artaxerxes, and then you see these asks, these questions followed up by action. He goes to the place of the brokenness, but he starts with questions. And again, I think as we think about courageous acts, we don't normally think about asking questions. That's not typically what we think of, but you need to understand the context and know these are courageous questions. That Nehemiah asked questions of permission, provision, protection. He, he essentially asked for time off work that ends up being 12 years by the time it's all said and done. He asked for that time off work, 12 years. He asked for provision. He asked for supplies. He asked for protection. And what you need to frame up in your mind is King Artaxerxes is the king of Persia, not Israel. In fact, King Artaxerxes didn't even believe in the God of Israel. And so it'd be like today if you had a boss that was an atheist and you boldly go to him and say, hey, boss, I was thinking about this. I need some time off. And he said, oh yeah, how much? And you said, 12 years. Okay, if he didn't kick you out right then and fire you, he's like, okay, what do you need the time off for? Well, you know, boss, I'm gonna go on this mission trip to serve this God that you don't believe exists. And now that I'm in here and we're having this conversation, you didn't kick me out. Like, could you fund the trip for me? And could you send me your best protection along the way? And could you supply, could you give me a travel visa? And the boss is at this point, like kind of frustrated, like, can't you get your own visa? No, no, can you provide that as well? That's what's happening. These are courageous questions that Nehemiah is asking. And did you notice King Artaxerxes has his own questions? You see that? When are you gonna go? How long are you gonna be gone? What are you gonna do? What do you need? And did you notice Nehemiah didn't say, oh shoot, I didn't think you were gonna say yes. No, he had the answers. You see, we're in the month of Nisan. It said that at the beginning of chapter two and you just blew that off. Like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's okay. That's four months since Nehemiah heard about the brokenness and the suffering of Jerusalem and his people. Nehemiah prays. You should go read it. It's a beautiful prayer in chapter one, but that's not all he does. He prays and he plans. See, Nehemiah has pinpointed answers in a moment for this king. Oh, when am I gonna go? Here, I'll tell you. Oh, what do I need? I got big ass. You, you, like he, he knew what he was looking for. He had been on YouTube researching, how do you rebuild a city? Like he'd read rebuilding a city for dummies. Like he had researched, he'd planned while he prayed. How many of you, the things that you're praying for, the job that you're praying for, the promotion that you're praying for, the spouse that you're praying for, the child that you're praying for, the house that you're praying for, the money that you're praying for. How many of you, you're just praying, but not planning? Think about it this way. If God gave you that money, what would you do with it? 
If God gave you that spouse, what would you do? If God gave you that house, what would you do? If God gave you that healing, what would you do? Would you be shocked by it? Like, well, God, I never thought you would have done that. Or would you be playing, planning with confidence that God, you, I believe you can do this. So I'm gonna plan like you are. See, many times we bifurcate these two things as a church, as Christians, we say, oh, there's praying and like, you know, my thoughts and prayers are with you. And like, we pray a lot and like, and we should pray. We should pray first. We should saturate everything we do in prayer, but we should plan like we have a God who answers prayers, amen? There's prayer and there's, there's planning. We see both in the scriptures. What I love about the book of Nehemiah is there's no miracles. There's literally people coming together to rebuild walls. You can't get more, more mundane and ordinary than that. But it's this planning, this ordinary, this mundane that God actually does a miracle. That's how it works. It's praying and it's planning. We do both. We see both in Nehemiah. We see it as he asks questions. We see it as he follows up those questions with action. Right, look at, at uh, verse 11 with me. Look at how much action. See how much action you see in this text. Verse 11, he says, so I went. Verse 12, then I arose. I went out. I inspected the walls. Then I went. Verse 15, again, then I went up. Nehemiah doesn't just pray or talk. He gets to work. He moves. We say love moves. That's what we see in the life of Nehemiah. He goes from the place where he was in Persia, and he goes all the way to Jerusalem, and he inspects the walls, and he sees the brokenness for himself. Now, why is that important? Well, that's actually where impact is made, right? Like if you tell somebody from afar, like, hey, I'm praying for you, but you never go and meet that need that you're praying for, it helps them, like it's, it's helpful. But what's really impactful is when somebody brings you a meal after you've had a baby, amen? Not just when they say they're praying for you. It's when you're like, man, I'm hungry and I could barely like sleep or brush my teeth. Like, can somebody bring me a meal? And that... That brings the impact, like their presence, their movement brings the impact. And so that's a big part of it, uh, the courage for Nehemiah, but it's more than that. You see, as Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, he sees the brokenness for himself. How many of you know, you can see poverty in a third world country, like on social media, and that affects you one way. You, you can see somebody who has an abortion, or hear about it, like I know somebody one time, that affects you one way. You can see somebody who lost their job or got a divorce, like you can hear about an extended family member and that affects you one way. But when you see it for yourself, when you have a woman who sits before you and talks about the abortion, I, well, that's a little different. When you go downtown and you see people who are experiencing homelessness and you actually, you don't just bypass them and act like you don't see them, but you see them and talk to them. It's a little bit different, doesn't it? When you, like our youth, you go on a mission trip and you see something you don't normally see or you go to another country, how many, you've done this, right? You come back and you're like, man, I just, you're gripped by it. You wanna give money to it. You wanna go back and, and serve in tangible ways. You wanna come talk to your church and say, hey, we gotta be a part of this. We gotta do something about this brokenness. Why? Because you didn't hear about it 
You saw it. You engaged it. And how many of you know Jesus Christ? He didn't just hear about the brokenness of our world and stay in heaven. How many of you know that? He came. He was born in a barn. The griminess, the messiness, the brokenness, the sinfulness, he came and he walked alongside it. He had conversations with prostitutes and tax collectors and he experienced it firsthand. And what that compelled Jesus to do was not just risk his life like Nehemiah, it caused him to give his life because he saw it up close. Church, what would change if you saw brokenness up close? If it wasn't a point to debate on social media, but it was a person who was, had the image of God on their life, who was suffering, how, how would that change the way you give your money? How would that change the way you serve? How would that change the way you talk about it on social media? If there was a real person who was suffering that you saw with your own eyes. That's how you make the impact, but that's also what ultimately impacts you. That's how it works. So there's courageous grief. There's courageous asks followed up by action. Church, as you see brokenness in your life, are you getting up close to it? Are you having the hard conversation, the humbling conversation? Is it more about a person than it is a point to where you wanna step in and say, how can we help? Church, that's what we're gonna be about as a church. Uh, Pastor AC just this week was at Hope Women's Center asking, how can we help? Seeing women coming in and out of that, the door, how can we help? How can we give? How can we serve with Love Fosters as we just gave and donated uh, nine guitars to a, a group home because somebody in our church, he saw the brokenness with his own eyes and mentored these kids and taught them guitar. And we want to say, how can we help and actually move when we see brokenness? That's courage. That's what we wanna be about as a church, amen? Amen. Last point, we see courageous reliance. We see courageous reliance. We see reliance upon God and one another. Uh, there's this rhythm to the book of Nehemiah. As you look at it, you kind of see Nehemiah starts out in chapter one, he prays. And then chapter two, he acts. And then you see again, he, he prays 12 times in the book. He prays, he prays, he prays. But then it's always followed up by action. He, he's responding in reliance to God, but he's also reliant upon one another. And we see it in the text, chapter two, verse eight. Look at that verse. He says, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Verse 18, he refers back to it. The hand of my God that has been upon me. And it's not just individual reliance, it's communal reliance. Look at verse 20. It says, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. You go on to see this take shape. Chapter three, a chapter oftentimes will skip in the Bible because it's a lot of names and it's a lot of different people groups and they're doing all these sorts of things. It seems mundane and it seems monotonous and it kind of is, but the power behind it is not. What you see in chapter three is what he just prayed for, this reliance upon God, this reliance upon one another. You see that take shape as over 40 groups of people come together to start helping rebuild. They rely upon God, the hand of God was on them, but they also rely upon one another. And again, you gotta picture this scene. As they rebuild a city, temple, walls, they didn't have cranes. They didn't have power tools. They didn't have a calculator. What they did have was the hand of God and the hands of God's people. That's how they did it. 
And any impact that they have, that's how they have the impact. Listen, as you look at things like courageous grief and asking courageous questions and prayer and planning and, and moving, as you look at all those things, you need to know you can do all those things and churches can do all those things and have little to no sustainable impact if they're not relying upon God, if they're not relying upon one another. Lots of churches, lots of people have, oh, they can grieve anybody out of the room. They can cry like real tears at an instant. They can move, they can go do some stuff. They can give a lot of money, be involved in philanthropy, but have no lasting eternal impact because they're not relying upon God and they're not relying upon one another. That's where the power is. In the formula, like grief plus action plus, it's gotta be reliance upon God, saturating, woven into all of that. If that's how, that's how it works. There's a courageous reliance. That's how it works in this book is, they, is they're able to bring restoration. And when they don't have that, that's how they fail. Like I would encourage you to go on and read the book of Nehemiah yourself this week. It doesn't have a fairy tale ending. Like chapter 12, people start to dishonor the temple. They start to dishonor the Sabbath. Nehemiah shows up and sees all that happening and goes rage monster on everybody and is just throwing things around. I'm going to see Dude Perfect live with my kids tonight, and they do a lot of Rage Monster, hence the reference. Okay, I digress. That's what happens. You think the Bible is made up? Go read chapter 12 of Nehemiah. A lot of better endings than that one. It doesn't end well. You know why? Because they stop relying upon God, and they stop relying upon one another. That's the way it works. That's true courage. So right now, as a church, we have the opportunity, the amazing opportunity to rely upon God and one another. Like every Sunday we have this as we work in teams, as we serve in kids ministry, as we impact our community for Christ. Like we always have that. But in particular in this season, as we do explore something like a potential church merger, what that is, is an opportunity to rely upon God and rely upon one another. You see, there, there's a few options for this season, particularly because it's this kind of exploration season. It goes on for a little while. Like we, we could have one response in this season of just kind of being stagnant. And we could just say like, man, I'm so excited about this church merger. Like I'll talk to some people first service. They're like, man, I'm so excited about that. Like we're praying for you guys. That's gonna be so awesome. And we could like go down that road so far that we could forget about relying upon God and one another. And we could just dream about the future. And we could just think, man, the grass is gonna be greener on the other side. When we get there, I'd like to do this. When we get there, I'd like to dream about this. When we get there, like, and we could just become stagnant right now where we are. That's one option during the season. Another option during the season is we could just be anxious. We could just assume the worst about people that we don't even know. We could just think about all the potential challenges and it could, it could paralyze us and it could depress us. It could worry us. Or the third option we could be relying upon God and ask him to saturate every ounce of this process. We could open up our hands and surrender every thought, action, word, or deed to him. And we could lock arms with other people and do that together. And we could see, even if the merger didn't happen, we could see a church that came out stronger, closer to God and one another for the kingdom of God. And whether we go there or we do something else or we stay here, that would be our success. 
And if we don't do that, that will be our failure if we go there, if we stay here, if we do something else. Amen? It's reliance upon God, reliance upon one another. And here's the reality about this specific thing for us as a church. You need to know, we as your leadership team, we are praying about this. And we believe God is leading us in this direction. We believe God has led us to this point, that his hand is upon this process. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in it. Like, you need to know that. That being said, there are obstacles like there's failures of leadership at that other church over the course of years that have brought about pain. They are starting a reconciliation process. We're helping them work through that and seeing that go through and seeing more of it need to happen. There's obstacles of like, so our church and our ministries are gonna come fine with their ministries. There's finances, there's budget, like there's all these things. Like, wouldn't it be easier just to buy a building one day? Like, even though those are expensive, like there's challenges and there's obstacles. Trust me, we are in tune with all of that. But there's also God leading us to this point. There's also humbling conversations that it's surfaced that have actually been refining and helpful. There have actually been divine connections. You're just like, wait, you and then y'all support this missionary in Uganda. We also are going to Uganda. And like you grew up at Bethany, like you, like what? How is this possible? And we believe God's, God's leading in that way. So we wanna be reliant upon him, but also reliant upon one another. Uh, if you don't know the story of our church, like every point in our church, where we've had a transition, a challenge, a pain or an opportunity. It always brings us closer to God and one another. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, so you guys are just like a seven and a half year old church. Y'all seem like a 70 year old church. Not because we look old. Like I just, I just turned 40, but you know, not, not because of that, like, just, they're just like, wow, y'all seem like you've been together. Like, how is that, how is that possible? And I, I said to them this, we've experienced a lot of pain together. So we're like family. And that's what I'm believing for this season is that we would have a church that comes out of this season, no matter what the outcome is, that's closer to God and stronger together with one another. That's ready for courageous, sustainable impact that heals the brokenness that is all around us across our city, the fifth largest city in the country and beyond. Right? That's my prayer. So whatever it is in your life or in our church, we are going to be a people that submit our lives to God and lock arms with one another. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the courageous acts of Nehemiah that ultimately you did in and through him. God, may we have that kind of courage in our church. As we talk about a, something like a potential church merger, as we talk about the potential job that we're looking to take, as we talk about our marriages, as we talk about our sin, God, our relationships, our conflict, may we be the kind of courageous people who step into brokenness, who grieve it, who have compassion for it, who see people and not just points. God, may we be the kind of people who band together to ask questions that are significant and pray and plan in significant ways that we might see our community who is lost and broken come to know you because of our influence. And God, may we step out in courage and just continue to rely upon you, continue to rely upon one another that we might see you glorified and, and put on display in the heart of our city. God, that's our prayer. May you use this time for that purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.